Hi, everyone. This is Jen Kesnick, and you're listening to UBU and I'll Be Me. And today on the podcast, fan favorite, Beth Kesnick. Hi, Beth. Hello, Mom. Thanks for coming back on. Sure. I think I'm a regular now. I know. You're practically a co-host. Sorry, Lisa Fox. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to have you on to talk about, A, say congratulations on graduating from Columbia Journalism School. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I know it was a very intense year for you, and you worked really hard all all ready having a day job. You did both, and it was a lot to balance. And uh, I know it was stressful at times, but you did it, and you created an awesome documentary called Living with ALS. Yes. And that was inspired by your grandpa, Mark Kesnick, and his sister, Joanne. Uh, Kesnick Neef, who, you know, both died of, I guess you don't die of ALS, you die of complications? Uh, in a way. I mean, ALS is a complicated disease. Yeah. Um, it affects your motor neurons and eventually, you know, the motor neurons die and you lose functioning of your muscles and eventually it leads to paralysis Mm -hmm. and it could start, you know, in your upper body, it could start in your lower body. So it's different for everyone. Right. Um, and then eventually, yeah, you have trouble breathing and swallowing and it leads to a horrible death. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's really an unbelievable, horribly unbelievable, unbelievable. Sorry. It's a bad disease. Yes. (laughs) I can't talk. Not good for a podcast host to not be able to talk. So anyway, so when did you start your documentary? How did you gather your information and all of that? Um, so one of my main goals of going to Columbia Journalism School was to, you know, produce a short documentary. I knew that was part of the curriculum, and uh, that was a main reason for me going there because mm-hmm. um, I hope to do, you know, more films and tell stories that way in the future. Mm-hmm. And For the ALS story, um, I really, you know, the second semester started in January and I was in this documentary and production class and the overall, you know, topic for the class was science and the environment and it could have gone any way from, you know, covering climate change to, you know, a disease or the medical community. So Mm -hmm. I obviously had a personal connection with ALS and I chose that as my topic. Especially since you had, um, Dr. Benatar at your fingertips, who was so kind to speak to you down at the Kesnick family MDA ALS center at the university of Miami in Florida. Yeah. So my reporting was like pretty extensive over the first you know, a couple months of the class because I was just researching, reading, and meeting as many people connected to ALS as I could. And I was lucky enough to fly down to the University of Miami um, Kesnick Center. And Dr. Benatar is one of the most brilliant and nicest and, you know, just overall greatest person that's working on ALS at the moment. Um, And he works closely with Neil Schneider, who is a doctor at Columbia um, and the director of the Lou and Eleanor Gehrig Center for ALS at um, Columbia Medical Center. So between the two of them, I just had access to the 
you know, and they both very generously gave you a lot of their time. They did. Yeah. They're both extremely busy people. Um, and they, you know, gave me significant amount of time to interview them on camera and also introduce me to other people that they thought would help my film. Such as? Um, so Dr. Schneider introduced me to a woman named Lindsay Abermattis Smith, and she's a 35 year old woman who has ALS and she was the main character for my documentary. Yeah. Um, she's amazing. And she was diagnosed at age of 28, which is kind of rare. Yeah. Um, typically for men and women, it's in your late sixties and seventies, um, that these symptoms occur. But there are cases, also Pete Frades, who started the Ice Bucket Challenge, was diagnosed at that age, and he's still living with it in his 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, so through her story and getting to know her, I she's an amazing artist, um, and she hasn't, although she can't really use her arms to paint and draw and write, she uses her feet to paint. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you guys see my documentary, you'll see that throughout the film that she completes a beautiful painting. Um, but it just shows that, you know, this disease isn't stopping her from doing what she loves. And, you know, you find ways to continue on. And Yeah. And that was a really moving part. And I know you had originally set out to do more of like a a heart piece, you know, a a real story to tell about people living with ALS Mm -hmm. since we saw firsthand, you know, what it's like to have that. And you wanted to to kind of make people understand um, what that entails and what that's all about. But your professors wanted you to do a more scientific kind of look at the disease. Mm -hmm. Um, So it ended up being a a short documentary um, that had a lot of heart and you could see the emotional side to it when you were filming Lindsay, but also very technical mm-hmm. and explained a lot about, um, you know, research and the latest in genetics and all of that kind of yeah. the science of ALS. Um, and I think there's pros and cons to both, you know, it was, I think I had more of the filmmaker kind of brain on that I wanted to tell this human story of this person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're at Columbia Journalism School and they want you to tell... It's journalism. It's journalism. So they want you to tell, you know, the facts and what's new and that side of it. Mm -hmm. So I think if I were to do a part two, I would... Which I hope you do. Yeah. I definitely want to. Um... And if I were to, if I am going to do that, I would like to tell more of the story of Lindsay or someone like Lindsay and um, kind of profile them in their day to day. And also um, kind of include the story of your grandfather and mm-hmm. the center and, you know, how that he left that as his legacy. Yeah. And that's another journalistic choice when you insert yourself into something and I think that that is relevant here because I obviously came across this topic because of my grandfather and his sister and it has affected our family and you know with all of the genetic discoveries made and the um, relevance it is in family and genetics. Mm -hmm. um, And so what was the percentage between spontaneous and familial? 
10% of cases are familial and 90% are sporadic. Sporadic. And so, like Lindsay's case, she was a sporadic ALS case. She didn't have a family history or anyone with it. Right. Um, And obviously, you know, the 10% that are familial, actually doctors and researchers know a lot more about. And it's easier to study a family's history than to, you know, see where this came from in a random sample, you know? And, yeah, and and then that's when the genome center kind of came into play with gathering of that data. Yeah, so in post the ice bucket challenge in 2014 raised 115 million dollars for the disease, which was fantastic. Um, and it did directly affect research labs that were waiting to be funded and it created the New York Genome Center, which um, is led by Dr. Hamali Fatnani. And she's an incredible person who's been studying ALS for years. And her lab, in partnership with Project Mine, which is another research lab in Europe, and all these other labs across the globe, came together to discover a new gene link to ALS. And so because of the increase, this global database that they have now, they're able to understand the genetics better and see that, you know, the C9 mutation is the most common genetic mutation in ALS patients at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so say Grandpa Kez has ALS and, you know, my dad, his brother, and his sister get this genetic testing, they can see if one of them has this C9 mutation. Right. And it's better if, you know, the earlier the better... Because then, you know, they're... They're making such breakthroughs with... Yes. And they have, you know, preventative therapies and they're testing new drugs this summer. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really an optimistic time. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, that I remember dad going to like one of those places that check you from like head to toe and, you know, just check everything, make sure you're okay. Dad's like... I want to find a, a bad one, so in case there's something wrong with me, there's a chance they'll miss it. <laughs> but it's better to know than to not know. I say all the time, like, you know, if there's mice in your attic, you may as well turn the light on and see where they are. Right. They're there no matter what. Yes, and I think that, you know, if you have a relative with it and you're the child of someone with it, it's you're a part of science and you're helping the cause, like they're not going to be able to crack this unless they study you. Right, right. So, so. It's, it's almost your responsibility. Yeah. To go get tested. Yeah. And um, I, it was great. I thought you did a great job. I thought the other people in your class did a great job with all of their documentaries. You know, they were all short. So even though we watched five or six, it wasn't like we were sitting there for seven hours. It mm-hmm. was you know all ten to twenty minutes each. Um, very extensive program, and I was really impressed by the end result. You really learned a lot. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. I feel like I became kind of an expert on the topic. Yeah. And now, what about environmental? Because you hear all the time, like, oh, the men's Italian soccer team from the 90s all have ALS, and, you know, these guys who came home from the Gulf War, a lot of them got ALS. Like, what is the environmental impact? Yeah, it's actually interesting. There's a big percentage of war veterans. Yeah. So the Department of Defense puts a lot of money into ALS research and other similar neurological diseases. 
Another unique thing about ALS is it's linked to FTD, which is frontal temporal dementia. Mm -hmm. So Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, all these neurological disorders have some sort of a link. And in order to understand how to help one of them, like they're all somewhat related. So you figure one out, you figure them all out. Yeah, there's, you know, it's it's hard because it's understanding the body on such a molecular genetic level, Mm -hmm. but they're all linked. And if you put money into ALS research, you know, it's going to help these other diseases as well. Right. And even in the, in the film, um, the woman who's the head of the New York ALS, uh, association or whatever Uh was saying, you know, the, the ice bucket challenge really raised so much awareness, Mm -hmm. um, even though it raised a lot of money, it, the more importantly, it raised awareness that people, you know, were understanding how many people are affected by this disease every year. Right. And I think that, you know, in the National ALS Registry, which is a, essentially a research program developed by the association and the government, there's 30,000 people in the U.S. with it at any given time. Yeah. But because of the global approach now, there's over 200,000 people worldwide with it. Wow. So it's not an orphan disease. It's actually, you know, pretty prevalent. And that's just saying who has it. It really affects the entire family. Hence why Kez started the center, because it was like one-stop shopping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he understood that he had a handicap van to take him to his respiratory therapist, to take him to, you know, his, his regular therapist. Mm-hmm. So he created in this place, like one-stop shopping, f- not only for the patient, but for the whole family mm-hmm. with counseling and everything else. I know they've kind of morphed into more of a research place, but I'm sure they still help lots of patients every day. Yes. I met also when I was in Miami with Gina Gonzalez, who's the head nurse practitioner. And they have an entire, you know, therapy counseling kind of group that also, and nurses that walk these families through, you know, what to do and how to prepare. Yeah. How do you ever prepare for that? Yeah. But um, back to your thing about the environment, it's interesting. Obviously, there's so much work around genetics and understanding that, but it's, you know, a lot of, look at Lou Gehrig, who was a baseball player who had it, Peter, Pete Frates, who was the Boston College kid who was a baseball player, mm-hmm. um, a lot of golfers, a lot of soccer players, like you said. So there's definitely... And so stop treating fields with chemicals. Yeah. There's definitely some sort of environmental exposure that could be a trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a definite, you know, like paper on it that says, yes, this chemical is responsible. But I think that that is definitely a factor. And Dr. Benatar said there, there are people studying that to understand that. Well, in the very least, I would hope in this day and age that people get involved with their local politics and stop your school districts from spraying playing fields with any kind of chemicals. Yeah. You know, it may not look, you know, perfect, but which would you rather? You know, you got to think long term here, not short term. And for the people that still get their homes sprayed with pesticides and you see those little yellow signs outside warning neighbors that they just sprayed chemicals on their lawn. Like Mm -hmm. if you put a penny in your shoe, 
with your bare foot over it, within a few hours, you're tasting copper in your mouth. Like things get absorbed through your feet very, very easily. Crazy. So your pets are walking on that. You're walking around in your backyard with your feet, with your bare feet, or you have babies, kids, grandchildren, what have you. You know, it's just enough. You know, you don't have to have the perfect lawn. You have to have a healthy life. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's something even Grandpa Jeff, your dad, would be preaching. That's what he, that's he started that in where you guys were going to school in West Hampton at the time, and he campaigned for clean playing fields, and he he got it. You know, he was a squeaky enough wheel and made a big stink about it, writing letters to the local paper week in and week out, and finally they were like, okay, let's shut this guy up. Yeah. And they stopped spraying chemicals. Like, I hope they still don't. I don't know, because it's been a while since you guys were in this school district, but, um, you know, if you live in West Hampton or anywhere, I would I would check. Definitely. On a lighter note, that scene in Step Brothers when there's white dog shit (laughs) (laughs) on the grass, like what was going on in the 70s that was getting sprayed to turn dog shit white. (laughs) Something's wrong there. I don't know. I have no idea. But it was all over the place back then. Yeah. I have no idea why. That's messed up. (laughs) Oh, the dogs are getting restless. Um, Well, I really... Thank you for coming on again and talking to us about this and just making people more aware. Your documentary can be found on YouTube. Yes, my YouTube page. You can literally just search my name, Beth Kesnick, and Living with ALS will pop up. Or check my social media. If you're not following me, I'm at Beth Kesnick on everything. So you can find a link to it, and I hope you watch it and look out for part two. Yeah, look out for part two. Well, uh, thanks, Beth. I love you, and I am very proud of you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, All right, so thank you again for listening. Please check Beth's uh, documentary out. It's really good. And as always, uh, go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, review, whatever you can do. We do appreciate it. Uh, Work hard. Be nice. Have fun. Peace.